0: Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance.
1: You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today's guest is someone that I really think you're going to love because I've done a bunch of interviews looking at the science of inflammation and coronavirus, and it's been just top of mind for all of us so much, the real impact on our society, on our economy, on the fact that well, stress, especially economic stress, is highly correlated with obesity and disease and things like that. This is not about that. This is about the other side of things. That's about the emotional side of what's going on, where we're actually taking more hits than we are, um, even in, uh, in our hospitals, I would argue, if you look at it over time. And Susan Davids, a PhD award winning Harvard Medical School psychologist, who wrote a bestseller on emotional agility. That's actually the title based on 20 years of research into the psychological skills that you and me and all of us need to actually win when, oh, I love this in these complex times, but basically when change is happening and bad news, change always happens, whether there's um, a virus or not change happens every single day. So basically resilience is the core of being bulletproof and emotional agility is the core of, of really being resilient so susan welcome to the show i'm really happy you're here
2: thank you i'm delighted to be here as
1: well now you're a ceo of evidence-based psychology and i gotta ask you straight up most of the evidence-based people that i've come across online are emotionally damaged people <laughs> And and what they're saying is, I'm an angry skeptic, and mine is evidence-based, but yours isn't. It's almost like a dig at everyone else, because, well, yours isn't evidence-based. Yours is, you know, woo-based.
2: Non-woo-woo-based. Waving of hands-based.
1: So, what does evidence-based mean to you?
2: Well, really, what I think is so essential is that so much of what exists in society, in our narratives about emotions, are uh, really narratives that undermine our resilience. And so... Really, I think the essence of my work is that it is science-based, but it's also pragmatic. And I hope that I convey it in a way that feels very human and connected, but that at the core, uh, it's really about what do we know about the science of adaptability and well-being. Uh,
1: in deciding to have you on the show, I, I looked at it and uh, evidence-based truly means that it works there's a reason for it to work and that it works and some of biohacking like it works i can tell you that repeatedly it works and i have no idea why it works but there is evidence that it does work so the mechanisms have to be known for there to be evidence right
2: uh well often we don't actually fully understand the mechanisms
1: but, but we have uh, evidence yes. if you do a b usually happens and that's yep, what you're looking exactly. for okay that's good exactly. deal. and i would double down most of the coping skills, uh, that I learned or the myths I believed in, uh, when I was younger and working to become successful and successfully become successful, you can still be an angry jerk the whole time. <laughs> and so uh, I wish that I'd understood some of the stuff that you're teaching in your book a lot earlier on in my career path. So when, when it all checked out, I said, all right, come on to the show. Um, but tell me emotional agility. You wrote a book on the topic how do you describe that to someone in an elevator? It's like, what do you do? Because I I don't know that I could describe it. I'm pretty good at that stuff.
2: Well, absolutely. So, I mean, the core of my work is really answering one question. And this question is, what does it take internally in the way we deal with ourselves, our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories that help us to thrive in the world? Um, Because fundamentally, The way we deal with our inner world drives everything. It drives how we love and come to our relationships, how we live, how we parent, and how we lead. And at its most basic level, emotional agility is about the capacity to be with ourselves. That includes our difficult thoughts and emotions and stories and past experiences in a way that's compassionate and curious and that doesn't hold us back from being the people that we most want to be, because often we get stuck in our thoughts, our emotions and our stories, and we aren't living in a way that's intentional and values congruent. And so it's about these different aspects, the, the being with ourselves healthily and being able to move sometimes even when it's uncomfortable towards things that matter to us.
1: One sentence here, emotional agility, right? I'm, being I'm not healthy, to pick on it's, you.
2: About being, it's about being healthy with yourself.
1: Being healthy with yourself. Okay, got it. So being it's around the voice your in your head. In your psychology. Okay. Now, if someone doesn't have the emotional agility that you're talking about, and oh, let's say that they're suddenly told that they don't have a job and oh, and by the way, stay at home, <laughs> no, <laughs> no getting a new job for you. Yeah. What is going to happen to someone in that scenario without emotional agility if we're just playing the odds?
2: So often what happens is when we experience difficult situations like the one you describe is we might not be practiced or effective with our emotions. So on the one hand, you might have someone who loses their job and they uh, brood on those emotions. They get so stuck inside their heads. They feel so you know, victimized and struggling that at a fundamental level, they are not really able to regather themselves effectively so that they can deal with the situation that they're facing. So that's one response set that we, of which we call brooding. It's basically getting so stuck in the situation and the, in the experience that you're having that you are in agile and you're not being effective. The other well, is well, when people... Well, let pause before we go under yeah, that it. second go one.
1: Uh, okay, yeah, I'm yeah, sitting yeah. at home. I'm eating my bonbons. I'm brooding. And I'm not effective. I don't have a job anyway, so who cares if I'm effective? Like, like what's what's the downside here, really? Well,
2: we care about it because uh, firstly, when people brood, there's a real cost. There's a real psychological uh, cost. The cost we know of brooding. That people who brood, the cost of brooding. We know that when people brood on their emotions, when they get stuck in their emotions, um they are they have lower levels of mental health and well-being. So it's actually predictive of depression and anxiety. Uh, We know that those people who do this in a habitual way, you know, there's nothing wrong with just brooding today or bottling tomorrow. But when we start to do this in a habitual way, we also know that it impacts on our relationships because we're so concerned about what we're feeling that it's almost like we're carrying a stack of books so close to ourselves, all of our emotions tugged into us that we are struggling to connect with the people we love, our family, our children, uh, support systems that might be in place. And then the other cost of brooding is we know that when people brood, it actually takes up a huge amount of cognitive resource. So we're so focused on what's going on for us that we actually become unable to problem solve or to find a pathway forward. And if there's ever a time when you might need to find a pathway forward, it's when you're feeling stuck at home and the world has been ripped from underneath you. So we've got to be able to reconnect with ourselves so that we can move forward in the world.
1: That makes so much sense. So the the real downside here is you're going to get caught in a brooding trap and you're going to take all of your time and basically think about, I'm really hungry. What's in the fridge? Uh, even if you're not really hungry. And you're going to say, I'm brooding. I'm so angry at, insert whatever political party and or organization you're angry at. Um, and you're not going to have anything left to be a good partner, to uh, find a new job, or to basically get your shit together. Right? Because it, it's, it's a, a, an energy leak, the way I look at it. Valid? Yes. Yes, and it's
2: absolutely very often done with the way or the, the perspective that one has is taken is, is often, I'm trying to figure this out. Um, but it's getting so stuck in the experience that it you actually are becoming victimized by the it, experience. It's the
1: wallowing in it instead of grieving and moving on. Yes. Okay. Yes. So that was one group of people are going to go down this brooding yes. path and they yeah. got in the brooding trap. What about the other group?
2: So the other is what I might call bottling. And bottling is where you push aside these difficult emotions. So you might be someone who has this idea that, you know, I've just got to pretend that I'm happy or, you know, even looking at your situation and going, I don't deserve to feel what I'm feeling right now because there are so many other people suffering. And so what we start doing is we start judging ourselves for having difficult emotions or pushing them aside, rationalizing. Um, and we see this again in a pervasive way where people who are experiencing uh, cancer are automatically told to just be positive or, you know, someone who's angry because of systematic injustice in the world stop being so angry and so what we have very often is this a uh, narrative that exists in our culture which is that that these emotions like grief and anxiety sadness that they're somehow bad emotions and that they're not legitimate and so we push them aside and then of course you might say well who cares you know what's the cost and the cost is the Interestingly, uh, you know, brooding looks so very different from bottling, but the cost is the same. When people push aside their difficult emotions, they are now not actually practiced in dealing with them, and so they actually tend to become hard hit when they lose their job or when a relationship breaks down. There is a cost to their mental health, their well-being. Again, they're problem solving because when you spend a lot of time trying not to think about a piece of cake in the refrigerator, what do you do? You obsess about the piece of cake in the refrigerator. We know that when people try to push their difficult emotions aside, there's a rebound effect and what is often called leakage. And again, it impacts on our relationships. So this is, you know, in a way what emotional inagility looks like when it comes to our inner world. Uh, We can also get emotional inagility in the way we often autopilot our lives and so we're not intentional in how we're living. And that's another type of inagility.
1: Your big TED talk with you know, seven million views was called emotional courage. Yeah. Now what's the difference between emotional courage and emotional agility?
2: Uh, Emotional courage is the short form language that we use to describe the TED talk. So it's the title. It's the marketing title. But basically,
1: it was exactly the same (laughs) ideas.
2: It's the same ideas. Yeah, it's the same ideas. And and really, you know, these ideas are, you asked me earlier, you know, why do you say that this is evidence based? Why do you say this is science based? And, you know, I think the science is really important because this is, well-being in lives. And, you know, we know that depression right now is, this is pre-COVID, depression was the leading cause of disability globally, outstripping heart disease and outstripping cancer. And so for people to be healthy with themselves, with their inner worlds is, these are not soft skills. You know, they're often described in businesses as being soft skills. These are the most fundamental skills that we can have as human beings. When we are walking in a world that is ever-changing, will continue to change. And these are the core skills that are going to shape our children's
1: lives and our children's well-being. Uh, Let's assume that uh, someone's listening right now and, oh my God, I think I might be a bottler and my spouse is a brooder. Uh, Let's just uh, deal with whatever they are right now. The first thing that you're most likely to do in a situation like that is say, I guess I'll work on some positive thinking and I'll wake up every morning and say, "Mm, uh, I'm not a bottler. I'm not a brooder. What's going to happen when they do that?
2: Well, positive thinking. So just to be clear, I'm not anti happiness or anti positivity. What I'm going to say is going to make me think that I am, but I'm not. I, I, you know, love uh, being happy and I'm actually a fairly happy person. Um, But what's interesting is this is firstly, when people say things like, you know, I shouldn't be this, I should be thinking that, I shouldn't be sad, I should be happy. Or when we go on Instagram and we see memes that say, positive vibes only, you know, let's chase happiness. You know, this is the message that exists. What what does this do? So let's look. The first thing is, as I've already described, when people push aside their difficult emotions, emotions that I might add are normal emotions. We are experiencing threat. Our emotions helped us to adapt and survive in context of threat. If you are feeling sad or anxious or grieving or lonely right now, that is your emotions doing the job that they were evolved to do. So what happens? The first is that when we push aside these difficult emotions in the service of forced or false positivity, what we are doing is we are not dealing with the world as it is. We are dealing with the world as we wish it would be. That's,
1: that's, In that's other bottling. Words, Isn't that it the it's same thing? Denial,
2: it's basically yeah, entering into a space of denial. Because often people bottle by saying, I just gotta be I've just got to be happy. The other thing is that there is this amplification effect. And then third is what we know is that people who try to be positive, positive, positive over time, actually become less happy over time. So there's this really interesting thing that happens. The more we chase happiness as a goal, the more we chase happiness as an expectation, the less likely we are to actually be happy because happiness doesn't come through the pursuit of some kind of goal. Um, It comes through living a life that feels Values connected, aligned with who we want to be, and congruent with our world and our experience.
1: Uh, that's a, a pretty dark uh, thing to say, uh, Susan. I, I mean, chasing I chasing happiness fails. You're basically screwed. Actually, you sound exactly like the Buddhists, right? Like if you chase happiness, you won't you won't get it. You have to stop and allow it to happen. Uh, but okay we're dealing with someone who's bottled up in fact i used to do evidence-based bottling i, I was very fancy in my bottling. <laughs> perfect, perfect. And so i i would be feeling all kinds of, of feelings and i'd be like there's no reason for me to feel fearful or angry and in fact it was usually fair um therefore i am not feeling fair therefore i'll smile and i'll be happy right but it was because I didn't have a reason for it. I hadn't grasped this idea that like maybe there isn't a known reason that I'm feeling this way right now. But you know, feelings don't have to listen to logic because they're feelings, not thoughts. Um, so I managed to unpack all that stuff, but it only took me you know some neurofeedback and you know some uh, holotropic breathing and ayahuasca in South America and you know God knows my path. I've talked about it enough on the show. So okay, back to our guest who's saying I just lost my job. I have no money. My spouse is a brooder or bottler and I'm not. And like, screw chasing happiness. What do I do right now? What do you tell them?
2: So a couple of things. Uh, First, I'm going to sound even more like a Buddhist right now because I'm going to say, you know, what is what is the power, you know, of really showing up to that emotion Um, that When you are pushing difficult emotions aside, as we've already explored, you know, you engaging in some kind of denial. And with that, often then comes other coping strategies that compound our problems even further. When we are pushing aside difficult emotions, often what we are doing as well is we might be oversleeping. um, We might be abusing alcohol. Uh, There are a whole lot of things that we might be doing. You know, these then become these addictive Uh, short-term coping strategies that, again, compound because when you come out of the situation, now not only do you not have a job, but you don't have a job and your relationship is broken down. So, you know, one thing that I think is just really powerful is, and I talk about this in my book, is the power of just showing up to the fact that this is tough. Like, you know, we live in a world that almost over- Proposes or overvalues this idea that we are all in a never ending Iron Man or Iron Woman competition where we've constantly got to be tough on ourselves. And there's such power in just showing up to the pain of that experience. Like, this is tough. So, showing up compassionately is powerful. But the other aspect of this is what I've been calling a uh, In these times, but I also talk about in my book, is gentle acceptance. And what do I mean by gentle acceptance? It is what it is. It is what it is. What I am experiencing now in my work, uh, but also previously, is that the more we try to control what is uncontrollable, the more we fight the world the greater our level of suffering. And so gentle acceptance is basically, it is what it is. When you walk outside and it is raining, gentle acceptance is, it's raining. Not gentle acceptance is, I'm going to pretend that it's not raining,
1: which is your (laughs) body. A little dysfunctional.
2: Or I'm just going to you know, or, why does it keep raining every time I go outside? Every time I think I've gotten control of the rain, it starts raining again. Like This is terrible. And so what you're starting to do is you're starting to enter into a space inside of you that is basically the space of struggle. And gentle acceptance is really this ability to show up to your emotions in ways that are compassionate and accepting. That's not all of emotional agility because there there are other aspects to it. But we don't get to create change in our world until we accept what it is. So it's not passive resignation, but the paradox of human living is that we are only able to make change when we accept what is, it's only when the city stops being bombarded, that we are able to start rebuilding. And so this is why, you know, there's just such power in showing up to what is, even if what is is difficult. And even if what is, are experiences that feel uncomfortable, an experience of grief
1: might be an example. You sound like you've rebranded stoicism. How much of emotional agility is like from Seneca three thousand or two thousand years ago? It's a real question, and that's not an accusation at all. Yeah,
2: no, I mean, I think that like you know, if you look at if you look at um, modern psychological thinking, there is there are different aspects of psychology, some of which say when you have difficult emotions, push them aside, you know look at whether those emotions are are rational, you know, do that. And then there's this other aspect that has many more of its roots in more Buddhist thinking um, or in, you know, there's there's a long history to a lot of these roots. But I think what is really important, again, from this evidence base, is that what we're looking at in modern psychology is not just this idea of when you're feeling sad, this is something that may be a good thing to do. It's like, what does the research actually tell us? What the research tells us is that when you try to push aside these difficult emotions, they come back. Internal pain always comes out. You know, what is effective or ineffective in the way we cope? How do we bring our values forward? These are the kinds of uh, pursuits that we know from modern psychology can be supported.
1: it feels to me, as a non-expert modern psychologist, uh, that the coming together of, of much of Stoicism, which is not obviously ignore your emotions, it's accept what is, and then the Buddhists, you know, become aware of reality and then and, and you know, the nature yeah. of all those things. And modern psychology is how much of you know, what's happening to you right now is run through your uh, your bottling filter or you know your brooding filter or. Uh, these other things. But when you start kind of putting them around saying, well, what really is, you end up somewhere else. But back to the skills you talked about, emotional uh, agility and then gentle acceptance. So now we've got the person sitting at home. They're all pissed off in one of those two states. And they say, okay, great. So now I've heard from Dave and Susan telling me, oh, I should just gently accept the fact that, you know, my landlord is going to kick me out and, you know, whatever other stuff is playing in their head. What is the process of gently yeah. accepting how trashed you actually might be in in reality, and and then how do you turn that around?
2: Yeah, so can I can I give a personal story? Please, and please, anything you like. You're here to that. teach. Yeah. So, okay, so um, one of the things I talk about in my TED talk is you can hear from my accent that I. Um, grew up in apartheid South Africa. I was a white South African growing up in apartheid South Africa. And I lived in a white community. And it was a community and a country that was really committed to not seeing. It was committed to denial, uh, not gentle acceptance, denial. When I was around 15 years old, uh, my father was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I recall my mother coming one Friday to uh, tell me to go and say goodbye to him. Uh, They knew that he was likely going to die that day. And so I went and I, you know, said goodbye to my father. And I recall his eyes being closed, but... But him knowing that I was there and I had this really powerful feeling of being seen because with my father, I had always felt seen. I'd always felt seen. So I kissed him goodbye and I went off to school. And that day my father died. And then on the Monday, my mother said to me, Susan, you know, we've got to try to keep things as normal as possible. So... Monday you should go to school and I describe in my TED talk how I kind of drift from Monday to Tuesday you know May to July to September and I'm going about and people are saying to me how are you doing and I'm doing what you described with your smile that you plaster on and you say I'm okay you know I'm okay I am the master of being okay because we live in a world that values people being okay okay you know, we weren't okay. My family was struggling. My mum was raising three children. She was mourning the love of her life. The creditors were knocking. And so I, as a child, started to do exactly what I'm describing in more academic terms in our conversation, which is I started to spiral down. I started to use food to numb my pain, and for me, as so many young girls do, it was binging and purging, refusing to accept the weight of my grief. So this comes to the answer, you know, to your question, which is, I had this incredible English teacher, and she handed out these blank notebooks, and she said, write, just write. There were notebooks to the class, but I felt it was an invitation to me. Tell the truth, write like no one is reading. And I felt invited to, for the first time, show up to my pain. And it's such a simple act. You know, showing up to your pain is such a simple, not simple act. It's, it's that, for me, it was this quiet revolution, and it was the revolution that really shaped my life and what then, you know, turns into emotional agility and my research. So, coming back to this person who's in pain, this person is in pain. It's not just that this person is feeling, oh, like the world is shit. It's like I'm in pain. I. You know, that pain might be a, a lack of belonging, a feeling of rejection, of not having place in society, of being unseen, um, of of grief. You know, if you've built a business over decades and that business goes through nothing that you have done, there is so much going on and there is power in showing up to that. Now, what does that look like? What it looks like is The acceptance that I spoke about, which is what is happening for me. It's the compassion. It's the compassion of saying, like, this is shit. Like, this feels shitty. Like, this is, you know, shitty in my South African, you know, Australian, New Zealand accent. Like, Just naming it is powerful. But then what I would invite is something beyond that. And this is where the science comes in and we're starting to move beyond, you know, the stoicism. And it's this, which is that we want to be able to show up to our emotions because our emotions contain, you know, really important signals to us. They're critical. As I mentioned, they helped us to survive. They've evolved for us. Um, Our emotions contain data to the things that we care about. This is really important. Our emotions contain data about the stuff that we care about. So I'm not saying, oh, just notice your emotions, um, you know, in a stoic way. What I'm saying is that our emotions are valuable. If you feel grief, what is that grief? That grief is love looking for its home. You know, that's what grief is. What's loneliness? If you imagined writing on a piece of paper or your person, your imaginary person or not imaginary person, millions of people out there writing on a piece of paper, what loneliness is, that's what they're feeling right now. If you turn that piece of paper over, what are the values that that loneliness is pointing to? It might be yearning, it might be connection, it might be the message that social distance is not the same as emotional distance and I need connection. So, our difficult emotions are signposts to the things that we care about. When we push them aside in unhealthy ways, We lose our capacity to adapt in the world because we lose our capacity to move forward in ways that we care about. And I'll just give you like one other example, which is I spoke to someone last week, and this is now someone who has a job, but she also has three children at home that she's trying to homeschool. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, and it's and it's and so she's like completely completely overwhelmed and stressed and you know for for her what she was describing was this unrelenting feeling of guilt so what is the guilt the guilt is that she's become so focused on you know how her children are doing at school and whether they're doing their homework and all the zoom calls that she's on that her guilt is that she basically feels like a bad parent okay so what is what is, the, what is the emotion? The emotion is guilt. What is that emotion pointing to in terms of our values? What's it shining a light on? It might be that it's shining a light on the fact that you care about presence and connectedness with your children. And even though you are nagging them 24-7, what you're missing is the presence and connectedness. This is really, really important because – The world will tell us how we should be. The world will tell us what success looks like. But ultimately, if we aren't living in a way that is connected with who we want to be as people, then we are going to be unhappy. And that's why chasing happiness for the sake of it doesn't happen. But trying to live in a way that feels values aligned is what's helpful.
1: What did your friend do? to get over her guilt or to incorporate her guilt? or
2: Firstly, um, often when we're experiencing difficult emotions, we use very big umbrella labels to describe what it is we're feeling. So I'm stressed is what my friend was describing. You know, I'm stressed, I'm stressed. That's the most common one we hear. But there's a world of difference between stress and anxiety, stress and disappointment stress and that knowing feeling that I'm in the wrong job or the wrong career or that this business might be failing. So what we know and what I've found in my work is that when we do something, again, that's very subtle but very powerful, we take this emotion that we are using a big umbrella term for and we start labeling it accurately. Ah, this is disappointment or this is exhaustion, I'm absolutely exhausted, then what it does for us is it helps us to begin to understand the cause of that emotion and what it is we need to do about it. So again, you know, our person who's sitting at home who might be really struggling might be saying, I feel really stressed. But that stress for that person might be lonely might be disappointed, it might be unseen, it might be, there's different things that that person might be experiencing. And we can only start both showing up to our emotions, but also moving forward with them when we understand what those emotions are. So number one, see if you can label your emotions accurately, because labeling your emotions accurately will start helping you to understand the cause of the emotion But also what it is you need to do. You know, do you need to give yourself your own time out? Do you need to reach out and get support? What is it that you need to do? So that's one strategy that may be helpful.
1: Fasting. It's one of the best biohacks because there are so many benefits to your body and it doesn't even cost anything. Fasting can help you live longer, increase your brain power, and even turn back your biological age because it induces something called autophagy. Autophagy swaps out old or damaged parts of your cells with fresh new ones. There is now an awesome product called Spermidine Life that actually tricks your body into thinking it's fasting, which triggers autophagy without any actual fasting required. Spermidine Life is extracted from non-GMO plants and it's super clean. Fast smarter, not harder. Add spermidine Life to your stack today, whether or not you practice intermittent fasting. Go to spermidinelife.us, use code ASPRI25 for 25% off your first purchase.
2: Another is, and this does actually connect it a little bit more with, with, with mindfulness, but I'm not one of these, uh, I don't believe in just, you know, this idea of like mindfulness for mindfulness sake, you know, you know, put out the trash and be mindful about it and drink your cup of water and be mindful, you know, I, I think that there's, you know, it's really difficult being mindful in every moment, every situation. Um, but when do we want to be mindful, often we want to be mindful when we are hooked into ways of being that are not serving us. So what do I mean here? Um, I spoke earlier about how, I'm, how I don't, the research doesn't support this idea that we've just got to enter into some kind of denial and pretend we're happy all the time, that it doesn't work. Um, There is nothing, there is nothing inherently good or bad about any thought, emotion or feeling that we have or any story that we have. We as human beings have stories that help us to make sense of our lives. We have to create stories about our world because it helps us to figure out what we need to pay attention to and what not to. You know, I know that my child crying in pain is something I need to pay attention to, but the washing machine in the background is something that I can zoom out of. So as human beings, there is nothing inherently good or bad about any thought, emotion or story. Is it is what it is. It just is what it is. So this idea that if we have a so-called negative thought that, you know, we're going to somehow manifest it and bring about a terrible chain of consequences for us, it's, it's just, we have around 16,000 spoken thoughts every single day and Thousands more course through our minds, thousands of emotions course through our minds, thousands of stories. You know, I can't take it today. Gee, I've got to give this person feedback. I wish I didn't. Why do I always get the, you know, we've, we've got this. There is nothing wrong with any of it. Isn't okay? it a huge
1: waste of time? I mean, if bottling is a huge waste of energy and brooding is a huge waste of energy, isn't having a really unproductive, angry voice in your head a huge waste of energy?
0: Our thoughts
2: just are our thoughts. They are our body and our psychology doing the job that it was meant to do, which is to protect us, to look out for ways that we might be tripped up by Dave, um, to look out for potential, you know, people who are out to hurt us. We to to protect ourselves from things that might go wrong. So our brains and our psychology, our emotions were designed to protect us. So, of course, we're going to be judgy and critical and have difficult thoughts, emotions, and feelings. Here's the thing. There's nothing inherently wrong with any of it. What becomes definitional of being in agile is when our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories stop us from bringing the best of ourselves forward, when we push them aside, when we get stuck in them, or when we have the thought that we want to trip someone. And we then actually do it, and doing it goes against our values. You know, really what I'm describing here is, when are we in agile? When we are in agile, it's when we get stuck in a thought, I'm not good in and therefore I'm not going to put my hand up for the job. An emotion. I feel sad and so I'm just going to stay in bed today. A story, some of our stories were written on our mental chalkboards in grade three about who we are, whether we're good enough, what kind of love we deserve. And those stories and thoughts and emotions can imprison us. They can stop us from reaching out or being who we want to be. And so another way we can unhook I started this talking practically, is by noticing those thoughts, emotions, and stories for what they are. Instead of, I am sad, when you say, I am sad, what are you doing? You are defining all of you by that emotion. I am being undermined. You are defining that experience as a fact that you are being undermined. So there's such power in noticing your thought, your emotion, or your story for what it is. I'm noticing the feeling of being sad. I'm noticing that this is the thought that I'm being undermined. What you're starting to do is create linguistic space. And this is literally linguistic space. That's a big
1: deal, what you're saying right now. Absolutely. It's
2: huge. It's huge. Because now... You are able to create, you know, you've probably heard many times on this podcast that the Viktor Frankl idea between stimulus and response, there is a space. Mm -hmm. And in that space is our power to choose. And it's in that choice that lies our growth and freedom. When we are hooked, there's no space between stimulus and response. We feel something and we believe it and we act on it. When we start noticing the thought, the emotion, the story for what it is, ah, that's my I'm not good enough story but I still choose to put my hand up for this job because I value learning, I value growth, then we can be uncomfortable in that, but we're moving in the direction of our values. So that noticing of your thought, emotion, story, just by naming it as a thought, emotion, or story, is extraordinarily powerful.
1: So, so you're going from feel, believe, act to feel, believe, think, act, which is going to create a difference there
2: it's the power it's the power of the pause it's the power of recognizing you know again to use a metaphor that you when you say i am sad you are basically defining yourself almost if you imagine a cloud in the sky you defining yourself by the cloud i am sad but but you know human beings you're not the cloud you are the sky as human beings we are complex and capacious enough to have many different emotions and then there's other things that we've got as well we've got our intentions our values who we want to be what we desire in our life and we can make space for that as well
1: It this linguistic space idea is is a really big thing because if you look at language structure and um, people who are from europe who speak other european languages it's very normal to say i feel hunger it, it would be how you'd say it in italian or something and by the way i am like the worst foreign language person i'm like the opposite of tim ferris um, everything said in swedish or french sounds like someone chewing on marbles I, I don't even hear the sounds auditory processing whatever so i apologize to my wife in advance because i still don't understand anything in swedish but what the the structure of languages is, is I feel this I experience this and what we say in the US is I am this and by defining ourselves with I am hungry (laughs) like that is really not going to do well for your eating habits (laughs) and you say I feel hunger you have completely changed what's going on in your head and I I love it that you're pointing out not just for hunger but for everything and it's because of the structure of the English language that we do this
2: yes it's so powerful we see the same happening in addiction Um, You know, like like I I have to, you know, there was this really fascinating study that looked at when people were trying to manage their urges around hunger, Uh, they did this fascinating piece of research where they actually asked these people to walk around with chocolates. So there you are, you're trying to manage your urges. And instead of going, oh, I'm not hungry, I just don't want to think about it, because we know... That when we try not to think about that chocolate, all we want is the chocolate. So when we bottle that emotion, it actually, again, has this amplification. So this wonderful research that looks at, okay, so what if you ask people to carry chocolates around with them? And when they're feeling the urge to have a chocolate, all they're doing is they're saying, I'm noticing that I'm having the urge to have a chocolate and it's normal to have this urge because it's something that i might want and you being compassionate with yourself and what we find is that when people just notice the urge for what it is but in the way that i'm describing it's curious and it's compassionate they are much more likely to get over you know addictive types of behaviors because they're now not defining themselves and and um or the psychological term for this is fusion. They're not fusing themselves with the emotional, with the thought. All
1: right, how dysfunctional or functional is this? If I was working on something like that, I would actually say to myself, my body feels hunger, where I'm not even identifying my consciousness with my body. And some psychologists, people are like, oh, Dave, I don't know, you need to be more connected to your body. Uh, And then from my perspective, I'm like, I, I like altered carbon. I don't know if you've ever seen the TV show, but pretty much, look, uh, call me a little bit Buddhist reincarnation. You're like, this is a sleeve, right? So at a certain point, I am not going to be my body and maybe I'll be dead and nothing will happen, but then still I'm not my body. So whatever, like I, I'm in here for a while and it wants all sorts of weird stuff. I don't want like it, you know, wants to eat when I don't really want to eat and it wants to run away when I want to run away. And like generally it has great wisdom. It's also completely stupid half the time. And it's my job to decide. Am I completely creating like uh, some sort of weird psychological damage to myself with this mindset, or is this a functional way of saying it's not even just me experiencing; it's my meat experiencing?
2: Well, I, I will say, you know, being able to connect with what it is you experiencing, your body, can be actually yeah. kind of helpful. Okay, there, there's data, you know, your anxiety, yeah. <laughs> etc. But, but we're speaking about, say, linguistic. Um, the, the linguistic skills that help us to perspective take. So let me give you an example of one of them. Imagine you're trying to make a really difficult decision uh, like LeBron James was making many years ago about whether to transfer you know, one team to the next. And you start saying, so what should LeBron James do? Like you experiencing this difficulty and you start talking to yourself in the third person. So an example might be, imagine I'm Susan David, which I am. And instead of saying, what should I do? I'm saying, Susie, like, this is a really tough decision. What do you think you should do right now? So we're actually doing the same with what you're describing with your body, which is you taking a kind of third person perspective around your experience. Now, what do we know about this? We know that this is incredibly powerful to be able to do. And I'll give you an example that I've seen so often in my work of how this operates, So imagine someone's feeling really stuck and you say to them, you're feeling really stuck. What do you think you need to do about the situation? The situation could be a marriage that's not working or I want to start this business or anything. And the person says, I don't know, I'm stuck. And you say to them, well, what are some ideas that you've got about how to get unstuck? I don't know. That's why I'm having the conversation with you. That's why I'm talking to you because I don't have any ideas. Then you said to them, I want to bring another person into this room. Think of the person that you know that is the wisest, most caring, loving person who has your best interests at heart. What does that person advise you to do? And this individual that I'm having the conversation with says, ah, they advise me to do this. They advise me to do that. Now, isn't it fascinating? It's the same person. But simply by bringing a different perspective, and I describe some of these skills in emotional agility, just by bringing a different perspective, an observer perspective into the context, we generate Solutions and the perspective taking is powerful. Perspective taking is the bedrock of empathy. Uh, when you are when you are so stuck in this tragedy, sometimes there's just power. And I, you know, in the midst of COVID, and my husband's a physician, and my children at home that I'm homeschooling, and there's all of the stuff going on. And you know, of course, I'm speaking to you from my bedroom right now. And so, I. On the one hand, could be, oh my goodness, this, um, you know, even in the shadow of this, and it is a tragedy. It is a tragedy. But sometimes when I'm having a really tough day, I imagine that actually I'm not in a tragedy, I'm in a comedy. And I don't mean a comedy in the suffering because, of course, no, you know, the suffering is is horrific and it's you know very front and center for me in my work but i'm really talking about for me when i'm having a tough day and i'm trying to unhook or when i'm so caught up in my oh i've got to do this and i've got to do that sometimes just imagining that i'm in a comedy my own comedy rather than my own tragedy can just free me. And again, this is perspective-taking. This is now moving on in emotional agility from showing up to our emotions that uh, that gentle acceptance into now starting to create space between us and our emotions. Because to circle back, I started off saying our emotions are data. You know, our emotions are data. Our emotions contain signposts to the things we care about but our emotions are data. They are not directives. Just because I feel upset doesn't mean I need to have it out with my boss. You know, we own our emotions. They don't own us. And so we want to be able to uh, harness the wisdom that comes from our emotions, but we don't need to be, be, di- be dictated. We, we don't need to be dictated by them.
1: I I, uh, I very much like that, that perspective-taking thing. And it reminds me of Napoleon Hill, you know, Think and Grow Rich. Uh, one of the exercises, this is a book I read when I was 16 or, or something. He says, you know, sit down a, a group of people, you're doing this all in your head, and imagine you've got whoever you think is most admirable from all of history, and you want God, sit him down. You know, you want... Buddha, sit him down. You want Thomas Jefferson, whatever. And then go around and ask them what they would think. And Of course, this is all your head and all those different perspectives. And he says, there, now your problem is solved. And it's not like this is new information, yes. but it, it's hard to do. Do you, do you recommend combining it with journaling? I mean, should people write that down? What, Cause you've mentioned earlier, journaling is a great way to deal with this. I mean, should you ask yourself and then write it down Write with a right hand, left hand, are there any hacks for this?
2: You could you, you could absolutely, you know, you can absolutely use journaling and we can speak about some of the power of journaling as well, if that's helpful. But yeah, you know, sometimes even just um, when, if you're getting stuck, for instance, in your identity, like sometimes we get stuck in our identity as a, this person or I'm an accountant or I'm an entrepreneur, we get stuck in our identities. And sometimes even just, you know, writing our name on a piece of paper and just Looking at these these squiggles of your name on a piece of paper that has come to almost define and embody you, but actually it's just squiggles on a piece of paper is a way of perspective taking. So there are many different ways. Journaling is very, very powerful. Um, You know, what I described to you earlier about my experience in journaling after my dad died was that for the first time, I felt almost this invited to show up to the emotions. And it's really interesting when you look at journaling, um, there is this fascinating research that shows that when people journal, and it, it doesn't need to be this brooding journaling, you know, I'm writing at a cafe for 15 hours every day about how I feel. It can actually be, you know, 20 minutes a day for three days. We have done in psychology a number of experiments on this, looking at, for instance, when people are laid off from their jobs, the example that you gave earlier. And you might have, uh, you know, people who are laid off. One group of people is asked to just write about the cars passing on the street. The other group of people is asked to write about their feelings about being laid off and what this means and the stress that it's brought about for them. And what we start finding is that the people who write about these emotionally salient and difficult experiences that over time, those individuals are more likely to be rehired quicker. They are more likely to find their way through the situation. And so it kind of begs the question, you know, what is it that is happening when one journals? And by the way, it doesn't have to be journaling sometimes speaking to a really wise friend who helps you to see a situation differently can be powerful you look at you look at people who write about emotionally difficult experiences Mm -hmm. it doesn't even have to be a difficult experience it can even be you know i'm starting a business and i'm excited about it but i'm scared okay so you can even write about exciting things the 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 embodiment here is that it needs to be something that is emotionally salient for you. It's emotionally evocative. And so what we find is six months later, the people who've done these little bits of journaling tend to be um, more likely to move towards their goals. They have better mental health, better well-being. And so it starts really to speak to these ideas of emotional agility, which is that Pushing the emotions aside doesn't work. Going to them, but processing them in healthy ways does. And what is it about the journaling? What is it? So when we look at this journaling, it's the people who are not being Pollyanna. They're not just being, oh, I'm looking for the silver lining here. This is all wonderful. Those people tend not to do well. The people who do well through the journaling are the people who've used positive emotion words, yes, yes but they've also used some negative emotion words. They've described what it is that they are feeling and they're starting over time to generate a sense of insight. So they'll say things like, I didn't want this to happen. I didn't invite it, but I've learned from it or this is a new way of being that I'm seeing.
1: When I started doing that uh, kind of work uh, in my, probably when I was about 30, I, I did like my first, oh, there's weird stuff going there. Um, it actually scared the crap out of me, the stuff I would journal. I'm like, wow, like I'm kind of an angry asshole. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, there was actually a great amount of, of self judgment there, you know, like, wow, you know, what, what's going on with, with all that. But, uh, at a certain point, I'm like, I, I've kind of done my work. I shut, shut off the vast majority of the annoying voices in my head. Um, neurofeedback and, you know, 10 day meditation things in Nepal and, uh, you know, a lot of stuff. Um. But I, I did find that journaling was a massive part of it. And then I just quaked. So like, I have other stuff to do. If I have 20 minutes, I'd probably rather do breathing exercises. So you're mentioning three days, 20 minutes is the minimum effective dose for journaling, but maybe more is better.
2: Well, the research the research shows that these these writing exercises that happen in a circumscribed 20 minutes a day for three days – can be enormously helpful that doesn't mean if you do it for longer it's not going to be helpful but i, I it just wouldn't
1: have been done in three days <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <But> okay <laughs> but you just you know, i think
2: i think i think the important point here as well though is that you can journal or one can journal in a way that's brooding that's just venting venting yeah venting. okay okay and so think of uh, think of for instance you're upset because you've had a fight with someone and so you go out with your girlfriend or, you know, with someone and you have a big fat moan over a cup of coffee about why this person that you've had a fight with is so terrible. Okay, what you're doing there is you're no longer brooding, you are co-brooding. Okay, you literally are like brooding with someone about your mother-in-law or someone who you don't like. So this is co-brooding. And what's really fascinating is that, again, once you've co-brooded with someone, You tend to like that person better because they got you, they gave you a time to vent. But you actually feel worse about the person that you've had the argument with. And it might be your spouse or your mother-in-law. And you actually come back to that situation with worse behaviors. And so what we want to be aware of, and this is this very consistent line that runs through my work, is that when you're doing your journaling or when you're leaning on someone for social support, that you are not just brooding with the person. There's, there's this intent that comes through it of being curious, of trying to understand, of trying to work things out. And so when you asked me for my definitional aspect of emotional agility, and I said, it's being compassionate, it's being curious and it's being courageous because the curiosity part is the what is the emotion telling me? Um, how can I be curious about this thing that I'm facing? And it's that that helps us to unhook.
1: That makes so much sense. I'm actually writing that one down: compassionate, curious, and
2: courageous. Courageous. Can read yeah. my own writing.
1: <laughs> 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 so uh, that that makes sense. And I, I want to put you on the spot here, though, because Do. all right. You're an expert in emotional agility. You literally wrote the book on emotional agility. Now, your husband's a doctor at Massachusetts general, and you suddenly find yourself homeschooling two kids who are preteens. Uh, so you are uh, on the front. Your, your family's on the front lines of the pandemic. You have all the concern about that. You have all the disruptions during your day that you didn't have before uh, from children. Uh, so you're the perfect example. What have you done? to enhance or maintain your emotional agility because like you're if you wanted to like like if you're a new york times reporter trying to find someone to interview who had all the like you're you're perfect (laughs) well uh, well
2: i want to give you an example later on of my imperfection because whenever i talk about this it's like you know do i have fights with my husband do i spend three days in a snit with him of course i do you know of course i do all of these for all of us are practices and we we know that these practices are meaningful so what is it that I'm doing when I'm having a tough day? Uh, I really, you know, I think what's become my mantra is it is what it is. You know, it is what it is. I think that's been really powerful for me. Another aspect that I'm really trying to focus on is to um, let go. And sometimes letting go is a choice. You know, it's it's let go of what I cannot control. I cannot control uh, whether you know some politician says something or doesn't say something in their speech, um, I can't control whether people in my neighbourhood are you know using N95 masks or not wearing masks or using. I, there's so much that I can't control, and I am trying to be really conscious of choosing to let go of what I can't control so that's been really important within that there's some things that i can control um you know the the basic building block of our ability to be agile and effective uh, is actually born of our health and our well-being and that includes things like getting enough sleep and eating effectively and so you know these things cannot fall by the wayside during this time they're critical and this is a long-term thing that we need to be doing, and then a third is—is is how am I trying to connect with my children during this time? My children are, uh, you know, they're actually pretty happy with everything. You know, they don't have to go to school, and they've found a groove, and they—they they get to sleep
1: in, <laughs> and they get to sleep <laughs> in, they get
2: all that stuff. But but you know, I, I they also having tough days, and so I think that there's. All of these principles, and I've got a whole chapter in my book, Emotional Agility, about dealing with our children in a way that's emotionally agile, because I think our erring as parents is to, you know, jump in. And and if a child comes home from school and says, you know, mommy, uh, Jack wouldn't play with me today, or Jack didn't invite me to his birthday party, now I'm not going to invite him. What you're seeing is a child that has no space between stimulus and response. The child is... Fused, um, they hooked. And so our erring as a parent is to say, oh, Jack didn't play with you today or Jack didn't invite you to his birthday party. Don't worry, I'll play with you. Let's go bake cupcakes. Let's. I'll phone Jack's parents and figure this out. So our erring done with really good intentions is to jump in and to try help our children to be happy. But what are we doing? When we do that, we are signaling to the child, again, that there are good and bad emotions. We are signaling that being happy is a good emotion, but that sadness or frustration is a bad emotion. Our children are going to be traveling through life where the pandemic might be one of a number of pandemics. Experience. They will one day lose their job or it will be automated or their hearts will be broken. And so we need to give our children the skills to help them again to deal with the world as it is, not as we wish it to be. So when we telegraph to our children, oh, don't worry, I'll jump in and I'm going to, you know, force happiness, we actually take away our children's capacity to learn and experience and practice emotional agility skills. So what I'm trying to do with my kids is when my kids are having a tough day is to not just jump in. You know, if you feel upset because someone didn't invite you to their birthday party, that child is feeling sad. And as a parent showing up to that sadness and and saying, you know, that that's like... That's tough. That feels that feels bad. This is powerful for children. It helps to give them a sense of secure attachment that they can feel and be what they need to feel and be, and they will still be loved. So that's the showing up part. The second part, we spoke about labeling emotions. So helping your child to label their emotion. The child who says, I'm angry because Jack didn't invite me to the birthday party— it actually sounds like you're sad or disappointed or you felt rejected. So that's the the labeling, the helping to step out. And then third, when our children are going through difficult experiences is helping them to understand their own values, their own why, because this is the moral compass that will help them in a world that is going to need them to have a moral compass. And so these are the questions that might be you know, you you sad because Jack didn't invite you to his birthday party, and I might be tempted to tell you, well, you have to invite him to yours because you're inviting everyone else and you can't leave that one child out. But what I could be asking instead is, it sounds like you feel really sad that you've been rejected and that friendship is really important to you. What does being a good friend look like? How could you be a good friend In this situation, how can you be a good friend to others and you're doing something so powerful because, you know, one day your child is, you know, going to turn 16 or 26 or 36 and someone is going to come to the child and say, I've got this great idea. Let's let the air out of the school principal's tires, you know, car tires and your child's going to be going ah. On the one hand, I want to feel accepted, but on the other hand, I have the sense of disquiet, and I'm now practiced in noticing my disquiet. And I'm also practiced in creating space so that I'm not just acting on my impulse of what feels good in the moment, and I'm able to get a sense of who I want to be. And so, you know, these are these foundational skills coming back to this evidence base you were talking about, we know that children who are able to label their emotions more effectively are able to self-regulate and that these studies, you know, are predictive decades down the track.
1: Wow. That's so powerful.
2: What I'm trying to do with my, in a long answer to your very short question, I'm trying to show up to them. I'm trying to show up to them.
1: Well, it sounds like you're doing a, a fantastic job of it. And uh, Susan, I, I really appreciate you taking time to be on the show today. I know it's a busy time for you. I think your book stands the the test of being truly evidence-based emotional agility. It's <laughs> worth reading for anyone who's dealing with pandemic stress right now. Uh, so if, if you're listening to the show and you're saying, wow, it's, it's a bit weird right now, there are some skills in here. Uh, you go to SusanDavid.com, which is uh, Susan's website, or you can buy her book. You guys don't know how to buy books. So I don't have to tell you how. And as always, if you purchase a book and you like it, just like you wouldn't ever order a cup of coffee without leaving a tip for your barista, you should never read a book without leaving a review. So go to Amazon and click a review. And if it deserves five stars, give it five. If it deserves one, give it one, but at least leave a review because tell me the truth, Susan, do you look at your reviews? Do they help you shape your work? uh
2: people's questions help shape the work and of course reviews they they help to get the word out to other people and so that's meaningful to me
1: it's like leaving a tip so if you guys are are enjoying susan's work or heck if you like this interview leave a review on itunes or you could just sit there and do some of those other dysfunctional behaviors we talked about before so either be a good person leave a review or be a bad person and don't leave a review we'll still love you (laughs) see you on the next episode
0: (laughs) thank you